Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome back to New Books in German Studies. I'm your host, Leah Greenberg. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Jim Ritalik about his book, German Social Democracy Through British Eyes, a documentary history, which came out this year in January with University of Toronto Press. Welcome to the podcast, and thank you so much for joining us. Nice to talk to you, Leah. So uh, Jim earned his BA in 1978 from Trent University in Canada and a Doctor of Philosophy in 1983 from Oxford. He became a Fellow of the Royal Society of Canada in 2011 and was promoted to the rank of University Professor in 2019. And Jim is in his 35th year of teaching at the University of Toronto in History and is also cross-appointed with the Department of German. He serves uh, as the general editor of the Oxford Studies in Modern European History and is a member of the editorial board for German history in Documents and Images. He's editing the fourth volume, focusing on Bismarckian Germany. Jim is the author of numerous books, including uh, his previous one, Red Saxony, Election Battles and the Spectre of Democracy in Germany, 1860 to 1918, which was featured on the New Books Network in 2018. And this came out with University uh, Oxford University Press in 2017. Red Saxony won the Hans Rosenberg Book Prize from the Central European History Association, and it will appear in a revised German translation in late 2022. So this is a big year. So your your latest book, German Social Democracy Through British Eyes, is the subject of our discussion today. Uh, work that presents the reader with a wealth of British diplomatic reports charting the development and challenges of the Social Democratic Party in Saxony. But before we discuss your newest work, I'd first like to ask you a little bit about yourself and what brought you to this field. Could you tell us a little bit more about what even uh, sparked your interest in German history in the first place? Um, Sure, thanks. Uh, Well, as an undergraduate at Trent in the uh, mid-70s, I had a terrific group of uh, professors. It was a small liberal arts university, about 2,000 students. So we had classes with our professors, not with teaching assistants from day one. And uh, we had quite a brilliant group of European historians at that time there. And one of them uh, was a man named Stuart Robson. Uh, who uh, turned me on to European and then specifically German history. Um, Like many people, I was uh, fascinated, I suppose, uh, but then moved backward in time, first from the Third Reich to the Weimar Republic to the period before the First World War. Um, And then uh, through a series of good luck uh, and uh, um, having good mentors, I had the chance to go and do a doctorate in, in England, uh, which was a very convenient place to continue to speak my native language, but to hop across the channel and get to the archives very quickly. Um, 
So in a sense, this particular book uh, brings me full circle to a uh, fascination with and love of original archival documents. Um, and uh, uh, it's, a, it's a privilege to be able to publish them and put them in front of students who uh, even 40 years later don't have as many English language sources on German history uh, as, as, uh, as they should. And so uh, it evolved into what I hope is a book both for uh, researchers and, uh, and for students who don't yet speak German but want to learn about the German's history. And that brings me to my next question, which is, um, if you could tell us a little bit about how this book um, came to be and uh, how it's set up. So it, it, um, it includes uh, some introductory material from you and um, a wealth of historical context, and also for each historical document that you present. Um, you know, you also walk us through some of the processes in which you came to these documents. So could you give us a little bit of an of insight into the sort of trajectory of, of how you assembled um, this book and, and what it's made up of? Sure. Well, um, I, I guess I can uh, address that on, a, on a, a couple of different planes, Leo. In one, in one sense, it came together over the course of eight or 12 weeks, at least in its essentials, in the spring of 2020. And so uh, I only, I'm only half joking when I say uh, I worked on it and conceived it and got the, uh, the, the central part of it uh, done while I was playing hooky from the project I was supposed to be working on during my sabbatical, uh, which had started on January 1st of 2020, which is my biography of August Babel. Um, it's exactly 25 months ago now, um, March of 2020, that the world was descending into the COVID-19 chaos. And uh, I was finding that uh, as our own library closed at the university and as interlibrary loan uh, shut up tight. Um, the books that I needed to continue writing a chapter of my biography just weren't available. And so I was probably suffering a little bit under the general malaise of the world going uh, to pot in those months, and I needed a distraction. But um, in another sense, it's a continuation of what I mentioned before, my, my interest in archival sources, putting them in front of students, using them in seminars, and um, trying to provide at least enough editorial material or structure uh, to allow students some context, but not too much, to, uh, to come to their own conclusions about this period of German history by reading primary sources. Um, I had had many of these documents in my file cabinets, either as um, photocopies or on my hard drive as scanned documents or sometimes still on microfilm reels in my basement. Um, and I decided that uh, if I pulled them together, it was a bit of an open question whether they would constitute a book or not. But on a particular uh, geographic area of Germany, um, for a period of about uh, four and a half decades, but on a very focused theme, that is social democracy, the rise of, the rise of socialism, and attempts to repress it uh, during the formative years of its history, 
that perhaps there was something to be made by um, editing these documents, uh, as I say, providing them as a teaching resource that didn't give away all the answers, but would allow a, uh, a university uh, professor, perhaps in a class, to ask his students what they make of them. Um, but it was also, in the final analysis, also a continuation of a of a method that I had used in my previous book, Red Saxony, and that is to overcome a lack of sources about <clears throat> domestic politics, day-to-day, month-to-month, election-to-election, crisis-to-crisis, on this period of German history, at the everyday level, at the local level. Um, in Red Saxony, I had used uh, diplomatic reports by diplomats from other countries who were stationed in Germany. And certainly the British ones that I used in this book figured prominently in, in that previous book. But I also used um, reports that were sent back to foreign ministers uh, representing the uh, large German state of Prussia, uh, the second largest German state of Bavaria, to uh, the capital of the Austro-Hungarian Empire in Vienna, as well as to uh, Washington and London, uh, to engage in what I called a kind of historical triangulation. And that is when different uh, diplomats with different perspectives and different prejudices reported on the same developments or even the same events, uh, they each added their own little wrinkle. Uh, they, could, they couldn't help but uh, let their own prejudices percolate uh, through their reports. And so um, I decided that pulling together the ones that had not at all fit within previous work, um, just the British ones alone, um, supplemented by some reports that I had <clears throat> excuse me, I had not looked at for many years because they were on those microfilms or scans, um, might tell a, a, a story that's both cohesive and comprehensive. Um, whatever else this book does, it does provide uh, virtually every single report that uh, arrived in the London Foreign Office about the rise of the socialist movement in Germany uh, from 1870 until 1914, at least from one particular corner of Saxony that I knew best, the corner, uh, the corner of uh, um, the corner of Germany that I knew best, sorry, and that is the Kingdom of Saxony. Um, so I thought that the cohesiveness, comprehensiveness, and um, as uh, one of my colleagues put it, the fact uh, a bit of serendipity that we had a delightfully insightful and delightfully opinionated uh, observer in the British diplomat stationed in Dresden, the person of George Strachey, that uh, I could publish these documents for students and their instructors and um, allow them to get into the day-by-day, week-by-week reportage that uh, is seldom to be found uh, in the in the historical record, at least as far as I know. And you already mentioned how this also dovetails with your work on on Red Saxony. So I was wondering if you could um, give us a, a bit more insight onto 
what uh, Saxony in particular provides us in terms of its lens into the growth growth of the Social Democratic Party and in the labor movement in Imperial Germany? Um, Sure. Well, in a nutshell, uh, the German Empire founded in 1871 uh, consisted of 25 different federal units, and the Kingdom of Saxony was only one, but it happened to be the third largest. Um, the largest by far, uh, comprising about two uh, about two thirds of the population of Germany and two thirds of the uh, geographic area of the German Empire, was Prussia, uh, mainly across the north. The second largest was the Kingdom of Bavaria, in the south, that uh, perhaps some of your listeners have visited for Oktoberfest. Uh, But the third largest is the Kingdom of Saxony, lying in between the southwestern states like Bavaria and the northeastern state of Prussia. Um, And uh, Saxony has exerted a certain fascination on me for for a long time that uh, I won't bore your listeners with, but um, I think it's it, it's large enough to be um, comprehensible uh, for somebody who's interested in the general political, economic, and social contours of one of these 25 units of the German Empire, and thus amenable to uh, focused local and regional research, but not unimportant. Uh, shortly before the First World War, the Kingdom of Saxony had a population just just less than 5 million persons. So that's a little less than today's population, say, of, uh, of Finland or, uh, or Scotland um, or Denmark. So um, unless you think that those uh, Northern European countries are inconsequential, um, I think perhaps a case can be made that some generalizations that are made about a Prussianized Germany uh, or a Germany of uh, um, spiked helmets and Prussian uniforms is, is uh, uh, not all of Germany. The particular case of Saxony, which is typical in some respects and very atypical in other respects, uh, provides a kind of meso uh, level uh, basis for exploring what uh, generalizations hold and what generalizations don't hold about German history uh, and Germany at that time as a conglomerate of states with very different political cultures and very different socioeconomic contours. I wanted to now turn to this British diplomat that you also briefly mentioned, George Strachey, who's one of the the central sort of characters in terms of writing these reports. Um, And he also seems to be a fascinating character of his own. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about him and perhaps how his own sort of social class and and political pedigree may have informed his writings and what um, particular... um, what his particular perspective um, really added to to uh, this collection? Um, sure. Uh, George Strachey was an oddball from a strange family. Um, and I, I don't want to give away all the, uh, all the juicy details about his oddball um, career. Um, he, he was sort of a lesser talent from a family 
uh, of many talents, of a Strachey family, which was the uh, lower uh, uh, aristocracy, sort of the, the lower, well, actually more accurately, uh, sort of lower upper middle class, if that makes any sense. That was a term that um, George Orwell once described, used to describe his own situation in, in uh, Britain after the First World War. Strachey's an oddball because he was very interested in arts and literature and culture. Um, and yet from the, even literally before he got his degree from Cambridge, he joined the foreign service. And um, at the age of about 24, like most junior diplomats had a variety of postings, but at the age of 46, landed in the Saxon capital of Dresden, um, which is a rather congenial posting because it's an old Baroque city with wonderful uh, uh, cultural treasures. Um, and uh, he stayed there from 1873 to 1897. So almost a a quarter century. And so he got to know it um, extremely well. Uh, He talked to uh, uh, the statesman uh, leading Saxon politics. He observed uh, debates in the Saxon parliament. He read the Saxon and other newspapers. Uh, He felt a little bit disgruntled because he never got the recognition from his superiors in the British Foreign Office in London that he felt he deserved. He certainly never got the salary that he felt he deserved. Um, He had to conduct his business without a real office. Um, He had he lacked what they called a chancery in his apartments in Dresden. He said he had four rooms with a wife and three boys, um, a total of four rooms. And so he could not even entertain statesmen or visitors, let alone the English people living in Dresden who wanted to gripe at his doorstep. Um, So he's a little bit misanthropic. He's a little bit uh, jaded in his, um, in his, perceptions of German and Saxon society. Um, As the documents make very clear, once we get to his posting there in 1873, um, he he believes that the Germans are uh, decades, if not centuries, behind the British in terms of their uh, political maturity. He often spices up his reports and saying that... um, the Germans he observed um, seemed to understand political problems and the solutions to political crises, including the rise of a heretical movement like socialism, uh, as uh, British might have done in the two, uh, in the Stuart or Tudor times. In other words, um, the Germans are so far behind in their political development that he looks down his nose at them. This colors all of his reports, but he's also extremely insightful, often quite meticulous and balanced in his appraisal. And he's a hard worker. Uh, he works harder than any of the other people that succeed him in the Dresden posting after he retires in 1897 meticulously writing out um, the programs that certain parliamentary candidates 
uh, espouse from soapbox platforms or in Parliament, meticulously sending to London preliminary and then final results of elections, chronicling the abuses of various freedoms, freedom of association, freedom of speech, listing how many socialist editors are thrown in jail uh, per year. The number is actually quite extraordinary. And so as a hard worker, George Strachey, in large measure, and this is up to readers to decide how successful he does this, but I think in large measure manages to overcome his sometimes disdainful opinion about German politics and um, provides very useful eyes and ears for the German Foreign Office trying to understand Germany and uh, what German politics might uh, uh, portend for the British Empire as Anglo-German relations go through their various twists and turns and generally after the 1890s go downhill, leading to the outbreak of the First World War. And you mentioned how Strachey is an observer of some of the attempts to curtail democracy um, in, in quite severe ways. So I was wondering if you could give us some examples of uh, these attempts to stem the social democratic movement um, and many of these other anti-democratic efforts that he observes. Sure. Well, um, anti-democratic, anti-socialist, absolutely, Leah. But um, one of the short passages, I have the book in front of me, I might quote is, he's also extremely good at uh, chronicling the very strong anti-Semitic sentiment in Dresden at that time. So I'll come to that in a moment. But um, uh, let me see. I have uh, earmarked here an example of um, basically a kind of report dating from uh, April of 1890, where he tries to convey to London the sense that the German government is um, uh, scared to death of what the end of Bismarck's anti-socialist law might bring. The the law expires in 1890. Uh, With the founding of the Second International in 1889, the celebration of workers' rights and emancipation on May Day every year actually begins for the very first time in history on May 1st, 1890. So a couple of passages here may give you the sense of how he reports the the German government's replying, uh, responding to this perceived threat. He reports, I'm informed that the Saxon government is in communication with Berlin as to the measures of prohibition or precaution, which it may be desirable to order for the 1st of May. If the Prussian authorities decide on interference with meetings or other manifestations, their example will be followed here with alacrity. The official caste in all ranks talks of strikers and socialists as if they were foreign enemies. The language I hear is, and he's quoting now, the time is not far distant when those people must be shot down with artillery. And he continues his report, the capitalist and shopkeeper class are equally intemperate. Well, in in a couple of reports further on, um, shortly after this anti-socialist law has expired, George Strachey has a -a tete-a-tete with the Saxon Minister of War, whose name is Count Alfred von Fabrice, 
And this is how he reports. His Excellency said, and he's talking about, he's sort of paraphrasing Fabrici now. He said that he had now come to the conclusion that the anti-socialist law had entirely failed as an engine of discouragement and repression, and that probably it had a mischievous effect in engendering bitterness and hatred. The law was impotent, Fabrizi continued, because it was a half measure. And here, Strachey perks up his ears. Why a half measure? His report continues, quoting Strachey. If you undertake to silence and extirpate opinions, you must not operate with flea bites, but take means of the most drastic sort. And so when Strachey says, when I said, you mean shooting? The general uh, intimated that he did, but that such a policy could at present only exist in dreamland. So he's indicating in these reports that the expiry of the anti-socialist law is scaring the bejesus out of Saxon authorities. They don't know quite what to make of this, but that they think, and the bourgeois Saxons who generally agree with their uh, uh, pronouncements, um, agree that there may well come a time not too far in the future where artillery or grape shot or other violent means are going to be necessary to uh, forego revolution and put an end to this um, heretical movement. That You'd also just mentioned the, the issue of anti-Semitism. So I was wondering if you could speak then more to how these, these issues converge, this, the rising presence of political anti-Semitism and the mobilization of an anti-Semitic league um, in conjunction with these um, anti-socialist policies. Um, yeah, good question. Well, um, I have to be carefully not to give you chapter and verse about what I tried to say four years, five years ago in Red Saxony. But I argued there that um, when I talked about authoritarian fears, about the specter of democracy, I tried to make the case that many of uh, the uh, uh, authorities in, in Germany of the day, but also many of the middle classes of the time, uh, whether we call them elites or not, they certainly called the tune in terms of uh, uh, political decision making. Um, they tended to lump together uh, socialists and Democrats and liberals and Jews as one sort of uh, amorphous threat to uh, a, a real, uh, true patriotic sense of Germanness or German na- national um, pride. Uh, they tended to um, elide uh, Jewish um, malfeasance when they could find it with the threat of socialist violence with the um, uh, unpalatable uh, efforts of liberals and Democrats to have some more representative form of government. Um, they, they tended to lump all these things together and they often used the colors to suggest that this was a, a, a kind of 
hateful rainbow of allegiances that had to be stamped out one way or another. Sometimes um, the color yellow is associated with uh, the so-called Jewish threat. The uh, yellow international, the yellow star of David was something that was used as a kind of code word uh, to either designate Jews or to um, somehow indicate what uh, uh, politically you might be against. Of course, the red threat is is uh, a common color that we know about. The, socials, the socialists, whether they were pure socialists or so-called moderate socialists, sometimes called social democrats at the time, the color red was associated with them. Um, at early in the imperial period, uh, Bismarck decided that the Catholic Church was a threat to German unity, and the Catholic Church is often denoted by the color black. Um, and so uh, very often, uh, it, and this was particularly evident in Saxony, those who believed that a non-democratic form of government was threatened by a, a range of uh, a range of threats um, often were, were not particularly careful in um, designated, designating one or the other as the most imminent threat. Um, let me give you a, a sense, if you'll bear with me, with one more short quotation. Um, George Strachey reports uh, about one of the leading anti-Semites, a man named Wilhelm Marr, um, who uh, uh, coined uh, 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 various anti-Semitic slogans. He arrived as part of an early wave of anti-Semitism in 1879, and he, he arrived in Dresden for a rabble-rousing um, uh, evening uh, assembly meeting. And it was popularly attended. And Strachey, uh, the last line of this quote, is amazed that um, so many upstanding, respectable, middle class or upper middle class uh, listeners from the uh, quite affluent city of Dresden um, believe what this anti-Semitic rabble rouser has to say. So I'll just read his report um, to, to give you a sense of why I think it's important to let researchers and, stu and students make draw their own conclusions from these primary texts. Um, Hermar, who had once came to Dresden, changed his tactics, for now he described the Semitic infection as curable by some peculiar remedies of his own. I'm quoting here. For instance, Jews are not to serve in the army, but to pay a blood tax for which the Judentum in the aggregate is to be responsible. The quote-unquote mosaic man to be removed from all official posts of every description. All bills owing to Jews to be paid with ready money, so that dealings with them shall not fall under regular commercial legislation. Jew newspapers not to publish articles on the religious and political affairs of Christians. Jews not to hold land unless for the cultivation by Hebrew laborers. Get a sense of the language here. I continue the quote. Jewish capitalists to undergo forced loans and stock exchange transactions to be taxed. And here's, here's the money line in his report. These ideas, he wrote, may be thought amazing. Perhaps they are less so than the fact that in 1879, 
in the city called Florence on the Elba, a large and intelligent audience listened to them with patience and apparently without dissent, end quote. So perhaps you see here that um, we're getting a firsthand report that conveys it rather than quoting uh, uh, the, uh, the the scurrilous texts that uh, Wilhelm Marr and other anti-Semites published, we have here packaged in a different way this diplomat's reporting, not only on what he said and the offense to our ears, the offensive terms that he used, but also the taking note of the very important fact that his listeners from a well-heeled group of um, affluent Dresdeners saw no reason to object to any of these plans to disenfranchise or otherwise discriminate against the Jews. And indeed, Mar was was uh, quite influential. Um, and you mentioned how you know he he repackages these statements and how it's also important for for readers of these primary texts to see how uh, an external observer was uh, analyzed these um, these political and anti-Semitic um, uh, perspectives. So I was wondering if you could tell us a bit more about how you've already brought these into the classroom um, and what your hopes are for how others might bring this into the classroom. You mentioned that you're hoping that this could be a resource for both scholars and for students. Um, have you worked with these particular texts already um, in your courses? Um. Only once so far. Um, I used the uh, PDF proof of this book in November last year in my graduate seminar on Imperial Germany. And um, I had the students read about 100 pages uh, out of 400 because I'm not a slave driver. Um, and uh, the 100 pages happened to do with the period of the anti-socialist law that was in force from 1878 to 1890. And a couple of students gave quite brilliant reports on the, um, the merits and the def- uh, deficiencies of these reports. Uh, right, out, uh, uh, right out of the gate, one of them said, well, I thought from the title of your book that you were going to give us some documents about what British workers thought about their uh, fellow workers across the North Sea in Germany, but no. Um, and in the course of that one, two hour class, Leah, I found that um, much more uh, context and other complementary sources are needed to, to help even the best students um, draw a connection between these fairly uh, focused uh, and sometimes humorous um, uh, documents to larger issues about modernization, inclusion and exclusion, uh, the, the prospects for a more democratic polity in Imperial Germany. Um, that I was able to provide even in the front matter of my uh, of my book. Um, I th- I must concede that I set out on this project without thinking very much about um, its usefulness or lack thereof as a teaching resource. Um, as I say, I was somewhat distracted by just putting my time to good use, 
as the COVID uh, pandemic descended on us. Um, it, the 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 little abstracts that precede every document sort of came very quickly to me. I I, I felt they injected a little bit of um, readability in the sense I decided to put them in the present tense so that the story moves along and the student can follow the um, increasing perception of uh, uh, each of these uh, reporters. Um, but... It was partly due to um, very kind uh, referee reports that my publisher um, uh, secured before publication of the book. They were all anonymous, but they pointed out that this might have um, use for uh, for classrooms, uh, especially for the many students in, say, fourth year of undergraduate studies or in a master's program who at least in Toronto and Canada can't usually be expected to be fluent in the German language, but yet are, are um, thirsting to, to work with primary sources. And so partly on the basis of my editor's guidance and, and the encouragement from those referee reports, um, I decided to build out the, uh, the front matter of the book a little bit more, provide more context and, um, and uh, even entertain the hope that it, it, the book might reach more than a half dozen scholars who are interested in Saxony uh, or the uh, particularly um, dramatic early period of uh, the social democratic movement. Um, and uh, we'll have to see. One of the students who was in that seminar is uh, uh, going to uh, report on uh, on her experience and her classmates experience when I uh, when I hold a little public discussion in a couple of days from now and uh, um, I have no idea what she will report but uh, I felt the class went well and uh, I tried to remind myself that uh, it should be more than a uh, more than an ego trip, making the uh, the students read something that I had uh, uh, cobbled together, but uh, it was I, I think I think most of them agreed that with the proper contextualization, and bearing in mind that there were competing sources that tell a very different picture about German political culture at this time, that can also be used. One example is working-class autobiographies that have been translated into English. Uh, that's another wonderful resource for students using primary sources. But, but mine is just one among many that uh, I'm, I'm happy if it expands the, uh, uh, the, uh, the range of sources that instructors at different levels, especially those whose who students haven't yet mastered German, can use in the classroom. We'll see. And, and in terms of building out the context of the work, you also provide several um, visual depictions that I think really uh, help to add, add meat to it. Um, several paintings and in the latter half um, photographs as well, political cartoons. Was that something that you had um, considered and, and um, put together as you were thinking about it as a, also a pedagogical document? Um, or was this something that was organically part of your process of, of putting the book together in the beginning? Um, I, would, I would say it's organic in the sense that I'm a big fan of, uh, big fan of images um, for teaching purposes and uh, 
well, for more than mere ornamentation, uh, illustrative purposes uh, in, in, in more than one sense of that word. Um, I've, this is, in a sense, the third teaching uh, book that, that I've done, or book-length project. The first was a very slim volume on Willemine, Germany, published in 1996. Um, and it was, was, was quickly forgotten, I think. It was specifically on the Wilhelmine rather than the Bismarckian years called Germany in the Age of Wilhelm II. And um, one of my dear friends and colleagues rightly pointed out that um, for all its merits, I, I basically gave everything away in that book. I tried to sum up um, the key elements of uh, Wilhelmine Germany and why scholars disagree about some aspects of it in 112 pages and didn't leave much for the students to argue about. Um, and he was dead right in making that comment. Um, then uh, the second collection was the online uh, collection on Bismarckian Germany. That's part of the resource that you mentioned at the outset, German history and documents and images. And there um, I was uh, have been working um, since 2018 on an expanded revised edition of that collection of documents and images. And as soon as the project was launched around 2004, all of the editors, including the project director, understood that students and members of the general public zero in quickly on images, uh, e even somewhat pedestrian ones. Um, sometimes to the exclusion of equally uh, important uh, written texts. Um, so I've worked with images a lot in my teaching. I'm, uh, that particular resource I use in every one of my lectures now, and I'm happy to say that a number of my former students who are prejudiced in the matter, but uh, neutral colleagues also use uh, use that resource. You can fire in images from the from the web into a PowerPoint slide twenty minutes before you go into the classroom and make a, a, a sort of mundane lecture come alive. Um, then a third teaching text, which I'm very pleased with and proud of, was published by Oxford University Press in 2008, which was a different format again. Um, I edited a collection of essays about different aspects of Imperial Germany, each by a uh, expert in that particular uh, area. This book didn't have any um, illustrations, but it had the merit of uh, having each chapter written by one of what I call the A-list of uh, worldwide scholars in each topic. And uh, I don't think that volume has been superseded yet, although it's got lots of competitors with handbooks and research companions that have been published, um, which are also excellent and key resources. Um, but uh, partly because I had... Uh, accumulated so many images for the German History and Documents and Images project. I had them on, uh, believe it or not, diskettes, on CDs, on my hard drive. Um, I determined that this book could and should have illustrations. The very f One of the very first requests I made of my editor 
was to write up a contract where uh, it would have not less than 35 uh, illustrations. I've learned the hard way. It's always good to get an editor's promise on on, on the written page that you could have pictures in your book. And um, what I did try, Leah, though, it, taking a page out of my uh, the book of my dear colleague in Toronto, Doris Bergen, I tried in this particular book never to let an illustration um, speak for itself. So as you may have noticed, some of the captions are, are rather lengthy. And I think that on the one hand, they may give away more information than the average student needs or wants. On the other hand, um, a good caption can make an illustration on the one hand come alive and, and the, uh, the viewer can understand nuances in the illustration that might not uh, otherwise be apparent. And what I tried is to place the images and, and devise the captions in such a way that they complemented uh, the exact page or facing page in the book um, where the report of George Strachey or another diplomat touched on a subject that was exactly illustrated in the image that I chose as far as possible on the facing page. Um, so the short answer is um, yes, I, I always hoped to be able to include illustrations. The great, the great thing about uh, illustrations in the Documents and Images project on the web is that one isn't uh, restricted to grayscale images as we are in an affordable book like this. Um, uh, lots of color images there that, that, uh, that come alive. But um, even with that limitation, I'm, I, I'm pleased and I always try to get some offbeat ones. Uh, like the almost, I think the last one in the, in the volume that uh, was not original to me, I, I stole it from an editor of, uh, uh, of the uh, Documents and Images project of course, with permission, but um, it showed the undercover police in Berlin shortly before the First World War, including uh, policemen who dressed up as women to infiltrate the uh, uh, the senior pubs uh, of the uh, working class neighborhoods. And uh, so I'm, I'm always, I always lean towards um, didactic or offbeat or if possible, didactic offbeat and humorous uh, illustrations, whatever. I can. Mm -hmm. Well, it's also great that you have these different different platforms on which you can share them. Um, I wanted to, uh, as we get closer to the end of our time, I wanted to uh, ask a question about the timeliness of the book. And your last book was also quite timely in you know, the age of Trump and Brexit um, to be thinking about the tensions between democracy and authoritarianism. And as you mentioned in the preface or uh, in, in the introductory pages, this book was written at a time when we were thinking a lot about questions of labor and the nature of labor and how that is um, um, you know, threatened um, and also put under a microscope in the COVID-19 um, uh, pandemic. So I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about how your your perspective on the book or your perspective on its timeliness has developed in the, the two years since you began the project. Um, I was also struck by, I believe it was in the historical overview, this idea of outwork um, in which workers had to bring their work home with them um, to 
cut down on the costs in the factory itself and made me sort of think about the the lack of barriers we have between the the private and 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 labor today um yeah terrific question um well let's see <laughs> what has changed and what hasn't changed in the in the uh, uh, two years since i conceived of this project um uh, on the on the one hand, of course, yes, you're absolutely right that uh, going into the office nine to five um, is not a uh, assumption that employers or employees can make anymore. Um, there are lots of uh, uh, reminders about transitions to what we call modern times that were happening in the late 19th century and, of course, continue to uh, evolve and uh, uh, produce winners and losers uh, uh, in social and economic change in in 2022. Um, I said in the preface that uh, unemployment, hunger and despair um, and healthcare choices that are made by governments or by uh, people proclaiming their freedom to choose um, continues to raise questions about how to keep people safe and who should be on the front lines. And um, I think that that uh, is a context in which uh, I felt very um, embedded in this book and, and felt that I uh, had uh, something to say about how people in one country view people in another country in terms of their ability to uh, react and adapt to new challenges. Um, uh, we think now about, say, the climate crisis, and we have some hope anyway that change on a macro scale could have benefits for humankind if we if we um, change our practices in time. Well, back in the 19th century, nobody quite knew where industrialization was going. Um, Germany in the 1880s and 1890s was sort of, uh, had, had, had passed the takeoff phase of industrialization, and yet um, they uh, were encountering unheard of innovations in the uh, petrochemical industry, in the electrical in industry, in the rise of mass consumerism, um, the mass press. Um, so it, it's been said that one characteristic of modernity is the assurance that tomorrow is going to be different from today. And that, uh, that sense um, which can be very disturbing to contemporaries, no matter what century they're living in, is something that I tried to convey in, uh, in publishing these reports. Um, they are, after all, um, reports about lived experience and class relations in all layers of society. Um, they're just snapshots of, uh, uh, of long-term developments that are, are very often generalized and, and watered down to words like an industrialization or um, globalization uh, or the rise of consumerism. Um, and yet, by focusing on the social democratic movement and efforts to repress it, um, I think that these particular years of German and, and world history 
are illustrative as a period when um, elite politics was changing into mass politics, but nobody knew exactly what mass politics would look like in the future. Um, The last thing I'd say on that is that George Strachey and other observers were able to chronicle many of the kinds of mispractice at election time that are um, with us still today. Um, the, the, the words that we use today were, were not used in the 19th century, but the practices that they described certainly were evident there. There was, um, there was fake news. There was voter intimidation. There was voter suppression. There was alternative facts. There was gerrymandering. There was discriminatory, uh, discriminatory practices against minorities, whether they be uh, Catholics or, or Jews or, or Poles or workers or uh, people living in rural areas. Um, the, rural, uh, the rural-urban split um, that uh, the 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 distrust of experts that we see in the rise of Donald Trump, or we see in the, the Brexit movement, the, the distrust of Washington, distrust of Brussels. Well, there was a lot of distrust of Berlin um, in the Germany of of the pre-war period. Uh, it was a political culture that I emphasize for contemporary observers, and in reality. Uh, was a moving target. And so that sense that um, history is in the making and that class relations are constantly changing and that things may not necessarily be different for uh, better for our children than they are for us. Um, these are the kinds of things that I, I hope that some of these reports by looking at the the uh, uh, grassroots of one emancipatory movement in a far-flung country of the world may have some relevance today. I say in the in the, in the last line of I think something to the effect that um, the social history of politics should look at society from the bottom up, but it should do so all the way to the top. And so these uh, these reports I try to provide a lot of different um, calibrations for um, uh, coming to new conclusions about the meaning and direction of social and political change in these in these decades. Indeed, these are persistent issues. And I imagine some of these connect to your current and your future research. I was wondering, um, as we wrap up, what are you working on now? What's coming up next? Um, well, uh, I... I think the next uh, publication, if I'm lucky, is going to be a revised uh, German edition of my 2017 book, Red Saxony. Um, the translation of a uh, what I think is going to be about a 950-page book, you can imagine, has taken a little time uh, because I have an extremely extremely competent and um, diligent and in the best sense of the word persnickety translator who I've I've, uh, become great friends with who's done a a magnificent job and I hope that that will make that work um, which is really 
a, a standard research scholarly monograph um, still um, available to a German audience who uh, sometimes don't have the patience, understandably so, to read a uh, uh, what in the English version was a 700-page book. Um, but I'm going back to what I was meant to be doing before I started playing hooky in March of 2020 to my large, bio- well, not too large, but my biography of the social democratic founder and leader, August Babel. Uh, a, a relatively long-lived worker craftsman um, who was born in 1840 and died in 1913, um, who uh, was a, an iconic figure. Uh, workers um, uh, called him their, the workers' emperor because they, in a sense, loved and, and idolized him uh, more than the uh, uh, German elites and let alone the German emperor Kaiser that they formally uh, uh, paid allegiance to. This workers emperor became an iconic figure, uh, uh, a celebrated one, kind of rather like Garibaldi before him, who who knew how to cultivate the modern mass media uh, and his followers helped him, of course. He was a a modest man, but um, a, a complicated one. And because he was long-lived, uh, a biography of this social democratic leader is going to give me yet one more way to talk about movements for emancipation, uh, persistent practices of discrimination um, over the course of a period of German history that, for better or worse, and I'm not particularly proud of this, I've spent my whole career studying rather than branching out, roughly 1848 to the end of the First World War. Um, it's very much a man in his times, or I guess one should say person in his times, um, biography, where I have a chance to talk about the larger issues of social, economic, political change through the career and the life of, uh, of this one, of this one uh, particular figure. Uh, I am bound and determined that I will uh, avoid any hint of hagiography because I've become more and more aware of his and his colleagues' shortcomings. Um, Anyway, uh, it's going to be some time before this is finished, but I'm very glad to have the chance when I'm not teaching to uh, to, to work away at this uh, remarkable figure. And um, he pops up, as you uh, uh, have seen, more than a few times in this book of documents. So uh, we'll see whether people have, uh, have more interest in him in a, in a year or two than they, than they do already. But uh, thanks for the question. It's always nice to advertise the next publication. Well, it sounds like you have a, a big undertaking ahead of you, but I look forward to reading it when it's finished. And also congratulations on, on the translation publications. Hopefully this will that'll be something we can see this year. Thank you very much. It's been, uh, uh, that particular project has been a, a, a long haul, but a very satisfying one. And uh, I'm ready to take my lumps 
from a book that was well received in English after 2017, but may get quite a different reception in Germany. It's a, uh, uh, it's going to be a provocative book. Uh, whether or not it attracts attention, I can't say, but it's going to uh, probably raise a few hackles. So that's well and good. That's always interesting to see how, how um, it's received differently on both sides of the ocean. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for your time. And I wish you a wonderful day. And I hope to catch you on the podcast again. Well, thank you for uh, terrific questions and taking time to, uh, to uh, do this with me. It was, it was a pleasure.